Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at Audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles from which to choose in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening contraption in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you have. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get Hitch 22, the memoir by the late, great Christopher Hitchens, narrated by Christopher Hitchens, or go get Unbroken, the runaway bestseller by Laura Hillenbrand, or how about World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war by Max Brooks? Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few bucks. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the transmission. This is me in Los Angeles. This is you wherever you are. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for sharing your headspace with me. Uh, my guest today is Adam Wilson. He's the author of the novel Flat Screen, uh, otherwise known as Flat Screen. It's his debut, and it is available now from Harper Perennial. Uh, Adam is a very funny guy, very talented writer, comes from a family of artists, uh, and his novel has been blurbed by a veritable who's who of contemporary literary titans. People like Gary Steingart, Deb Olin Unferth, Darren Strauss, Sam Lipsight, and Tom Parada, just to name a few. So uh, he and I are going to be talking in just a bit. Uh, otherwise, what is happening? 
Uh, I might go to Israel. That's what's happening. Uh, I might go there for research for a novel that I'm, uh, you know, the, the one that I'm working on. And this is a relatively new development, and I don't know why uh, exactly, but for some reason, at the level of intuition, I'm deci- you know, I've decided that my book is probably going to end in Israel, and I've never been to Israel, and I'm thinking of going there so that I can see Israel and then write uh, about Israel. So I want to go to Jerusalem, and I want to go to Tel Aviv, and possibly the Dead Sea. So uh, with this in mind, I had coffee last week with my friend Jodine, and uh, we were discussing Israel. And Jodine has a sister who lives over there in the Holy City and is a rabbi. And so I was picking Jodine's brain for information for a possible trip later this spring. And uh, what will be interesting uh, if I go is that it will probably be for a four-day weekend, which would, uh, which would seem to be an incredible amount of travel in a short span of time. But uh, that's what will have to happen. So if I do uh, wind up going, I'll keep you posted. And I'll try my best to record audio for the podcast uh, in Israel, which, uh, which might be interesting, which might yield some interesting results. So otherwise, uh, something that caught my eye this past week uh, as I was uh, wandering around on the Internet is a quote in an article uh, at the Daily Beast. It's a profile of the Santa Fe Institute, which is a place where uh, like people with big brains gather to exchange ideas about uh, you know, like science and the arts and everything in between. And uh, perhaps most famously on the arts side of the equation, Cormac McCarthy has been going there for years. And uh, he, of course, is the author of The Road and No Country for Old Men. And uh, I believe he did uh, you know, a lot of intensive research at the Institute when he was writing The Road, talking to uh, like nuclear physicists, trying to, to, to figure out what an actual nuclear winter would be like. Uh, so anyway, in the article, and this is what caught my eye, uh, there's a quote uh, where McCarthy says that he hasn't read a novel in years. So here, here's the direct quote. I'm not here at the Santa Fe Institute because I'm a novelist, he said with a smile. I just managed to sneak in. I haven't read a novel in years. And I find this interesting, particularly if he's actually uh, serious. He, he might be joking. I don't know. But if he's serious, uh, he's not the only major American novelist you know, of recent times to claim that he doesn't read novels anymore. Philip Roth uh, said the same thing last year in a widely uh, read and widely quoted interview with the Financial Times. So here's what he said, quote, I've stopped reading fiction. I don't read it at all. I read other things, history, biography. I don't have the same interest in fiction that I once did. Asked why he came to this position, uh, Philip Roth then said, I don't know. I wised up. I wised up. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Does that mean, like, Philip Roth thinks you're stupid if you read fiction? And it's somehow worthless or self-defeating or masturbatory to spend your time reading made-up stories by other people? Or does it mean that fiction in general is some sort of lame, dying art, uh, the profundity of which can only be realized through the honest recognition of its ever-increasing irrelevance to the culture at large? I don't know. And frankly, uh, you know, upon further examination, if I, if I think about it a little bit, that would seem not to be the case because Roth and McCarthy, uh, you know, their primary mode as artists continues to be fiction. It's not that they've stopped writing this stuff. It's just that they've stopped reading it, apparently. So when Philip Roth says he wised up, you know, maybe he means that reading history and biography and other assorted nonfiction is more useful and stimulating to him as a writer of fiction than reading other novels is. 
Likewise for McCarthy. You know, he likes to read about science and stuff like that. And then he writes tone poems set in the desert southwest. In which case, to each, you know, to each his own. You can't bash somebody for that. I think these guys are just being honest. They're telling you how they work. And obviously, both of them are extremely intelligent and extremely well-read. And uh, both of them have, you know, they've read more fiction than most people on Earth by a wide margin. I think that's safe to say. And so maybe for some people, uh, you know, after a while when you know how the sausage is made, it's harder to, you know, to enjoy the sausage or something like that. Um, but then on another level, <laughs> I, I think it, it also kind of demonstrates a pretty stunning recklessness and just kind of a, you know, just a, a radical, I don't give a fuck attitude, uh, when it comes to the, the business of selling novels, you know, I mean, both guys are, are uh, up in age. They're in their seventies, I believe, and they've done it all. They've got nothing to prove and their legacies would appear to be intact, you know, insofar as a literary legacy can remain intact in this day and age. And they don't, they certainly don't lack for book sales, at least not compared to the rest of us. So if they say, you know, I don't read fiction, it's probably not going to diminish the sales numbers for their books in any kind of recognizable way. And I don't know about the rest of us, but I don't think it's going to affect them. But, you know, I, I just can't help but imagine when I think about this, I can't help but imagine a parallel statement in some other field or like some other realm by a person of similar stature. Like, imagine the CEO of General Motors sitting down for an interview with, uh, like, say, Fortune magazine and saying something like, well, I haven't driven an American-made car in years. <laughs> I wised up. Or imagine, like, Steve Jobs, if he were still alive, uh, being like, an, an iPhone? You fucking kidding me? <laughs> so, you know, leave it to writers to say something like this. And you know what? It doesn't piss me off. It really doesn't. And maybe it should, but I, for some reason, I can't get mad at them. You know, I kind of love it that they talk like this because I think they're telling the truth or their version of the truth with absolutely no thought or allegiance to self-protection or profit motive. They're just speaking their minds. And if you don't like it, you disagree, you love fiction, that's fine. And I'm sure Cormac McCarthy and Philip Roth would say as much. They'd probably be happy to hear it. That's great if you do. They don't. That's just how it is. It's their opinion. And if it messes up some business thing, well, oh well. And I sort of like that. I gotta say. There's a strong part of me that likes that. I just, I, I think I get tired of people considering profit and marketing and spin and presentation uh, when they talk or when they tweet or whatever it is. You know, it's especially when people are talking to the media, the mainstream press. You can feel it. It's just getting worse, it seems like. And after a while, you don't know when people are being honest. Which is why I like doing a podcast. You know, I like the fact that it's untethered, that there's no FCC rules. I like the fact that I can say what I want, and that my guests can say what they want. And that we can cuss, and we can be irreverent, and we can speak with no filter, like actual human beings. But, uh, but, but of course I don't listen to these things. I don't listen to podcasts. I haven't listened to a fucking podcast in years. I wised up on that one a long time ago. You hear me? You morons? I don't even know who you are anymore. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I started, I, I, I think I, at the time I was living in Austin, Texas, and I had this terrible job holding up a giant orange arrow by the side of a highway. And um, I sort of started working on this thing, and then when I had that job, it seemed like suddenly it was a really good idea to go to grad school, so I applied to grad school, and I went and did an MFA. And Where'd you get your MFA at? Um, Columbia. Oh, you did. Okay. And then what about, uh, this job where you were like holding the orange, the orange arrow up? What, like what company were you working for doing this? I got it through a temp agency. I was having a very difficult time in Austin finding work. Um, I had moved there to work, to work in film, uh, to work on film sets. And, and I sort of didn't do that. I did. I worked on like two movies and then never got another job on one. Um, and I, I was getting work through this temp agency who kept, you know, they gave me this gig. They gave my roommate a gig, like shoveling, shoveling donkey crap at a, at a children's rodeo. <laughs> uh, it was like the worst, I think it was called a plus temp agency. And it was really, they didn't have much to offer. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I had this job. It was for it was holding up an arrow, pointing the way to open ha- open condominiums, um, and I basically just had to stand in the highway exit ramp and hold an orange arrow for six hours a day. Now, did you get into it though? I mean, I, fe- I feel like sometimes I see those people and they're like dancing and they're you know spinning these things around with like some. I mean, they tell you to, they tell you to, but. I don't know. I sort of, I was quite lethargic. Well, well, no, but wasn't it like, uh, I mean, was it summer? Because Austin can be blazing hot. I mean, you know. Like... It was It was hot. It was hot. Um, yeah, it was summer. I think it was summer. Oh, my God. Um, but um, you were allowed to have headphones, which was which was nice. So you could listen to music. Right. Something. Um, and, and it paid 10 bucks an hour, which, which isn't, wasn't bad. Um, when I had that job, a lot of people, cars would stop and ask me how they could sign up for it. Um, Wait, but, how they but, could sign up for the job? Yeah. Really? So do you had, did you have a lot of interactivity with, uh, with the people who were passing you by? Yeah. People would stop and, and laugh at me, but a lot of people would ask how they could get the job. Um, <laughs> it, it was actually, I think a pretty desirable position. Um, but you know, luckily 
I had a college degree. <laughs> yeah, you you, so, you edged them out. Now then, and then yeah. you went. You went. You left Austin because, like, if you wanted to work in film, I guess like a natural question is like, why didn't you come out to Los Angeles? Why did you go to Austin? Uh, I don't know. A bad decision. Maybe <laughs> 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 it seemed less intimidating. I, I'm not really sure. Um, and wait, where are you originally from? I'm from Boston. Okay, so you went, you, just, you went to I Austin think I from Boston. Boston. Yeah. Yeah, it the rhyme was a big part of it. <laughs> I think I just like heard that Austin was cool and kind of and just went by that. Yeah, I was like, oh, I guess I should move there. It does have a good. It does have that reputation for, of being like for a lack cool. of a better option. It, it has. Yeah, uh, it's got like the the music thing going, and then I feel like Richard Linklater did something to me psychologically, like where I just automatically thought that like Austin was the greatest place ever. No, exactly. I think I really just wanted to somehow reenact days and confused. Yeah, exa- yeah uh, exactly. But instead, ended up being in kind of like a weird Texan episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> so, what, <laughs> how, how long were you there for? How, what was the? Uh... Uh, I was there for a year. Okay. So, yeah. And and what did you like? What did you come away thinking? I mean, obviously, like you know, your uh, you know your employment situation was less than desirable but did you come away thinking that the town was uh, what you had thought it would be was it better was it worse were you let down yeah i mean i didn't have a great time there i i don't want to blame austin for that because i think part of it was i just didn't really have any friends or really know anyone or ever get laid which which was a big factor well no but see i've heard, um, I've heard it's like an easy town to meet girls in is that bullshit I don't know. I, apparently not, I guess. I, I don't know. I think I was also in a, psychologically in a, in a really weird place where I maybe wasn't putting my best self forward. <laughs> like what? How so? Like were you depressed or was it uh, was it? Just... Yeah. You know, I was depressed and I, you know, did a lot of solo drinking and, and just didn't really wasn't so socially engaged right um solo drinking not not usually con- conducive to uh good times I, I don't think right no no rarely rarely yeah so what were you drinking were, were you like a solo drinking like whiskey or just like solo drinking yeah like beer mostly whiskey okay um i think i when i moved to austin i or really in college i started drinking whiskey as purely as an affectation and then just started liking it. <laughs> right. uh, no, but I feel like as a hetero, you know, heterosexual male, there's something about yeah. there's something about an amber beverage that makes you feel no, exactly. uh, like appropriate. Like I always like if I'm out with like friends and I'm at a bar, um, you know. Well, actually, I, I shouldn't say that because like, I will order a white wine. I don't give a shit anymore. You know, like I'm married, and you know, like people people can judge me if they want to judge me. But like in certain situations, I will uh, order a whiskey out of some weird feeling of social pressure when in fact i think i prefer i prefer uh vodka or especially wine i just like wine for some reason i don't know why see, well, that's my drink fair enough. fair enough and uh but it is strange though i feel like it's a whiskey is a guy thing it's a very you know hetero male thing yeah yeah well i think that's why i started drinking it but then i just start then i just drank it so much that it ended up just being sort of like my drink 
Well, and then did you feel like you had to like settle on a brand? Because I feel like that's part of it too. It's like, what's your whiskey? You know, like, uh, do you do you have a favorite? I don't know. I've bounced. I've bounced around. I've never really quite settled. Well, like um, bounced around from what to what? I mean, are you just just all over the map, or are there like you bouncing back and forth between? Well, two no. I think in college I drank a lot of Jack Daniels. Then and then in grad school. I, I switched to Jameson because that seemed cooler but equally cheap. Um, <laughs> more, more befitting a man of Columbia, you know, like more befitting yeah, exactly. an, an MFA. Exactly. Now I like to experiment with various types of bourbon. So you're still drinking. It's not like you drank yourself to the point where you had to stop or anything. Oh, no. That would be terrible. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, that is sort of one of the questions that, you know, seems to have arisen from this book is, is people keep asking me like, you know, you know, the character does a lot of drugs and is drinking and people, a lot of people ask me, you know, if that's based on personal experience and if, you know, it's from, you know, it's written from the point of view of someone who's, who's now, sober and looking back on, on this, but that's just not the case at all. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I did have, I do have a lot of friends or had a lot of friends who, who had sort of gotten themselves into a place where now they're, you know, they've been rehab and AA and now they're sober, but that just, I feel like I've always sort of been able to temper my, my drinking and drug use, like just enough so that I will never have to do that. That's my goal. Well, you know, this is it brings up an interesting point because it's uh it's it's not cut and dry, you know? It's like it would be I think it's like it's easy thinking to to say that like anybody who's drinking to excess or you know, you taking drugs um to the point where like, you know, it's exacerbating feelings of depression or even causing them or it's somehow impacting relationships that they have in a negative way. That doesn't always mean that you know you have to go off to rehab and get completely sober and never touch uh, alcohol ever again. You know, like there are people who uh, can have those experiences and then pull themselves back and then fall into um, you know uh, a, a consumption pattern that is workable. You know, and that isn't yeah. destructive. I mean, that does exist, and so it just it's you know it gets dicey to talk about because people automatically assume if you say that that you're somehow in denial. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Sure, and you know, and um, and people who, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say like anyone who's who's sober. It's like, oh, they could just have a drink and be fine because it's obviously not the case. But, of course, yeah. You know, I'm I'm so afraid. I'm so I'm so afraid of 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 getting so fucked up that that I'd have to become sober. That it keeps me it keeps me a little bit. Um, it keeps me from from getting a little too excessive. <laughs> you love it so much that it actually helps you moderate. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. So, okay, so when you go back to Austin and you talk about like this solo drinking period, um, and like you know, because I, I feel like, and you started writing the book during this period, and I feel yeah. like that I feel like that story is somewhat common. You know, you're in some sort of rut, or you hit some sort of um, nader. You know, like where you're, you have no relationship or you're living someplace where you feel alienated or alone or whatever. And it's just not a good time. 
And it's like out of that experience is born, you know, at least the beginning of, uh, you know, a creative work of significance. Uh, and so like when you look back on it and you have some perspective, like, do you know what was making you feel depressed? Was it that you, you had creative aspirations that weren't realized and your career, you know, your career or whatever just seemed like it was going nowhere. Was that it? Or was it a bunch yeah, of, Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. I mean, I sort of felt very stuck and didn't really know what to do and, and kind of got this sense that if I stayed in Austin, I'd like work at a coffee. Everyone I knew seemed to work at a coffee shop and was in a band on the side and seemed perfectly happy to do that for the next 20 years. Um, and I think I was really afraid of that. And I wanted, you know, I had this idea that I was going to go there and work in film and write screenplays. And I wrote a screenplay while I was there with a friend. Um, but I also kind of realized how difficult, you know, the film world is to navigate and how impossible it would probably be to ever have the screenplay turned into a movie. And I, I sort of, you know, felt like, you know, kind of came to realize that I was actually much more interested in writing prose, I think. Um, and what was and, it? I mean, was it just like the business realization on the film side or was it what you were doing creatively and like what you were drawn to, you know, in terms of uh, consumption, like you were obviously reading more books than you were. Well, yeah, I was reading a ton of books. Um, I was also watching a ton of movies, but I, I think a big part of it was just being on film sets. I suddenly understood that how unimportant the writer is to the film and, and how, you know, I, I kind of would watch these, movies, these scripts turned into get turned into terrible movies by all many incompetent people who who were sort of put in charge of of um you know turning this turning this project into kind of a an actual living creation and I don't know, but you know, there was something I the 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 personal control of writing fiction seemed really appealing. I was exactly the same way. I, I was a film, I studied film in undergrad, and that was the epiphany for me. Even at that level, even at that, that like piddly level, just putting together like a student film and handling all the gear. And, you know, we were, I mean, it was just a pain in the ass. And um, I, I guess I just don't love to collaborate that much. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's what I discovered. I just don't want to work with other people like that, you know, creatively. It's too much of a hassle. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. So what movie sets were you on? Like, was it anything we would know? Um, well, yeah, I worked on probably nothing you would really know. Um, Just like indie films or what? Like, indie what? films, yeah. They make a lot. At the time, they were making a ton of indie films in, in Austin for tax reasons. And then I think, like, shortly after I left it, Everyone went and started making them all in Louisiana because some tax laws changed. Yeah, I feel uh, like there's like a lot of movies shot in like Shreveport. I feel like I hear yeah, that yeah, stuff like that. Um, but I think at that time there was a lot shot in Austin. So now, in and when you talk about uh, you know shifting over and deciding to get your uh, MFA, like did you have enough of the novel done, obviously, or at least some sort of writing sample to submit to Columbia? Was that what you? Yeah, I. Had I had written, I didn't have much of that novel done, but I had written a lot of short stories in college. Um, Where'd you go to college? Tufts. Okay. So yeah, I'd written a lot of short stories in college, um, and I used, used those as my writing sample. Um, but, I mean, my real reason I went to Columbia, I didn't, 
really know much about MFAs, um, but I, while I was living in Austin, I read Sam Lipsight's novel Homeland, and I Googled him and saw that he taught at the Columbia MFA program, and that was pretty much the and I thought, oh, I want to meet this guy. That was it. And that was, yeah, that was it. That was actually, I think, the only program I applied to. It was just kind of like on a whim. And it worked. Yeah. What did you did you did you notify them of your love for Sam Lipsite? Like, did you did you reference that in your cover letter or whatever, or was it just sort of secret? I, I don't think so. It was just kind of a private love. <laughs> just between you, just between just between you and Sam. Yeah, between me and the book. Did you, I did, and you had him as an instructor once you got there. Yeah, I worked really closely with him, um, and that was kind of, that was you know the best thing about going there. Like, how, the were you nervous when you first met him? Yes, very. Like, describe that a little bit. Like, what was it like? Did you know? Well. You know, I just wanted him to like my writing so much, I think. And I, I wasn't nervous meeting him, but I was nervous giving him my work. Right, I, right, right, right. And, uh, and he, you know, he blurbed your book, right? So clearly he liked yeah. it. Um, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I, and, yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, just with regard to your uh, with regard to your book, I was looking at the, uh, the blurbs on it. And, like, you've got an amazing list of people to blurb this thing. Um, if you don't mind me saying so, like, it's just a great, it's like, you know, now of course I'm blanking, but it was like Sam Lipsight, uh, it's Debol and Unferth. Is that how you pronounce that? Am I, am I screwing that yep. up? And then, uh, who else? I'm trying to think of who else, but you, just, um, you got Steingart. a lot. Yeah. Gary Steingart. Like you got a lot of notables. Like how did, how did that happen? Was it all just sort of like a, an outgrowth of being in Brooklyn and just kind of mixing with these people or did your publisher? Yeah. I think that was mostly mostly an outgrowth of sort of being in Brooklyn and yeah, going to you know doing reading and going to parties and somehow just at some point meeting a, a lot of people. I I while after grad school I worked for a couple of years at this at a bookstore called Book Court in Brooklyn. Oh sure yeah. Um, and I probably that I met it was a you know a great experience. For in part just because I met so many writers at such a kind of writer's bookstore, um, and I, you know, and I also got to I, I hosted the their event series, so I, you know, introduced all these people like Steingart and Jonathan Friends, and when they came to the store, um, and got to meet them all. So that was, you know, I, I definitely think that played a part in helping me get blurbs and stuff. Sure, and what about uh, like what about that? Like when you're hosting. Uh, notable writers, and you're seeing a lot of these people come through the store. Like, do you have any great anecdotes? Did anyone ever like do anything crazy, or is it pretty? Is it a pretty like sober bunch? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, there were some. There were some fairly. Yeah, it was more of the after after parties. I think got pretty crazy, but I often had to stay and clean up when everyone else went to the bar. So. <laughs> That could be a bit frustrating. Yeah. Um, but um, I'd say the craziest, the Don DeLillo came, and it was the only event he did for Point Omega, which was pretty insane. Um, and there was, like, there was a line out the door blocks long, and, and someone fainted during, it was really hot, it was in the summer, and someone fainted during the reading. And the reading had to stop, which which felt like such a sort of Don DeLillo-esque spectacle. 
Um, yeah, and what was he like in person? I was just talking about him on the podcast like not too long ago, um, just about like you know his aversion to public appearances and doing stuff because uh, I had somebody write me a letter and like beg me to get him on the podcast, which seems laughable to me that he would you know that he would yeah. do it. And so I'm just curious, like what was your inter- like interaction with him like? I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's probably just like a, a normal guy who just also happens to not. Um, no, I think he's not a normal guy. I think he's just on Palua. <laughs> with my, I, I don't know. I, I didn't have much interaction. I had to stand in front of him and and like part the sea of the crowd as he walked to the podium. Um, and that was pretty much my entire interaction with him. And he said, "Thanks." That was it. But I mean, like temperamentally, yeah. you couldn't get a sense. Like, what did he seem like? Haunted? No, not haunted. Just I don't know. Just kind of reserved okay and smarter than everybody and, else <laughs> and also just cool and more just cool yeah like too cool but in a in an awesome cool way yeah no i had like, i sort of get that sense it's, it's weird like uh how you imagine writers because i've read his stuff like really uh thoroughly you know and like you develop an idea of who they are if you've done that especially if you've gone through a lot of books by one person and sure. um you know i don't know i'm just curious to know if like my idea of him is in any way synchronous with the actual him you know yeah i don't know i think it was very hard to tell i mean he basically just came in walked up there read his piece and left <laughs> that's so awesome did he sign books yeah. Yeah, he signed. He signed. Oh, oh, okay, okay. It would be even better if he didn't sign. He just like read and then yeah, just walked out. Um, um, and he didn't have like an after party at a bar, obviously. No, no, no after party for him. Damn. Uh, Brett Easton, Brett Easton Ellis, I think had a had like an exclusive after party that you had to be invited to. That was his. Was the his was his even even being there like. Like sitting in the front row, you felt like you you were sort of on the B list still. <laughs> like I remember, he had this. He had there was a couch right at the front, and he had this this sort of entourage of young and very stylish gay men who were kind of like his entourage, who who just spent the entire time laughing hysterically and and seemed to be like the only people he was reading. He was actually reading to. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Wow, that's good. But uh, he was uh, he was all right actually. He he answered a lot of questions and had some pretty funny. Well, he's he's actually like I've seen him read too, and like he's actually you know he's a really good performer. I feel like, like yeah, he's good in yeah. front of a crowd. The the the, the, the best thing about the Belillo one was that people showed up. You know, people, a lot of people got there really early to get seats, and of course, the people who showed up early to get seats are these kind of fringe lunatics who. Um, who all um, these sort of like semi-homeless crazy people <laughs> who, are, who are obsessed with the Lilo and, you know, like like think that, you know, he figured out who killed Kennedy and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I was going to say they have like a dog-eared <laughs> copy of like Mao too. And, uh, and so one of these, right, exactly. And, the fir- you know, the first question, he did a Q&A and the first question was like one of these guys in the front row had been there since four in the afternoon and he, he just says who do you think is responsible for 9-11? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> what, did, uh, what did he say? 
It's like, well, contrary to popular belief, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just write about characters who are sometimes conspiracy theorists. Right. He was like, I, I, he's like, he's like, you might think this is shocking, but I actually don't think Bush knew about 9-11 before it happened. And, wow. Now, and uh, I guess he's been asked those kinds of questions before. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I guess he's probably used to dealing with these yeah. kinds of people, you would imagine. I'm sure. Yeah. Does he live in Brooklyn? Is he like a, is DeLillo a Brooklyn? No, I think he lives, he lives out near Sarah Lawrence. Uh, I don't which know is like, that. yeah. It's, it's like, it's not far from the city, but it's sort of in the country. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, when you were working at Book Court, that was when you were getting your MFA? That was like your little, like, night job or whatever, or day job while you were going yeah, to school? Yeah, well, I finished. Well, I finished the MSA and then I was working there. Okay. And so this was this was post MSA. All right, and so uh, you, were you reinvigorated from your uh, doldrums, uh, you know, in Austin when you got to New York? Did you find like the energy and everything uh, to your liking yeah. and the structure of graduate school after like, you know, the structurelessness yeah, of Austin? It was great. Uh, and you were working on the novel during school and after. I- yeah, I, I you know I wrote a few couple drafts of it during school, and then it was my thesis, and then sort of spent a while revising the thesis, and then revising it again and again. Um, so there were many drafts, and it sort of drastically changed shape over time. Now, were there people whose uh, whose input was like instrumental in making those changes, or was it the kind of thing where like you just sort of like realized what the book was, you know, over time upon subsequent readings, and then you made the changes yourself? Yeah, I think the major changes were things I you know slowly realized over time. There, but definitely some of my teachers and some of my my students, um, some of my fellow students, um, you know, were were pretty instrumental in various ways. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I, and I also just think, um, a lot of my, a lot of things I read during that time were really instrumental in helping me kind of think about the shape of the book. Um, like what? Um, trying to think in terms of the, sorry, I was just going to say, I didn't know if there was like a book or a couple of books that were like, just like, you know, the, the prominent examples or if it was, you know, well, I read yeah, I read a ton of books, but I think in terms of in terms of the voice and the in terms of the structure, um, um, some this Gilbert Sorrentino novel that I read, um, and actually Christopher Sorrentino's novel Sound Down Sound, in, in a weird way because I don't think my book's anything like that book, but sort of helped me figure out the structure. Um, I don't know, reading um, Stanley Elkin for the first time was really, in some ways, was, was a major contribution to the voice of the book, I think. Um, trying to think what what other things... Did you ever get, did you ever get any, like, instruction um, or, you know, any inspiration from uh, things other than other books. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did music ever... Because I find that sometimes that happens. You know, it can come from weird places. Oh, yeah. And you just, like, all of a sudden you're, like, listening to a song and it sparks something and you have some sort of epiphany about the way your book ends or, like, how it's structured. Or oh, how, definitely. You know? Like, was there anything like that definitely. that you can think of? Yeah. Well, the band The Hold Steady were sort of 
a guiding force in this book in a weird way. Um, I listened to them a lot during the time when I wrote the book, and I think, you know, that they have this album that's kind of, it's about, like, sort of fucked up teenagers doing drugs in suburban Minneapolis who are Catholic, and I was like, oh, yeah, I could write a book like that, but about Jews in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and it could be, but I mean, like it can be something as simple as that, you know? Like, yeah, it's not it doesn't it doesn't yeah, it's not, it doesn't have to be some sort of like huge complicated thing, you know? It's like so often, yeah, no, exactly. So exactly. let's talk about Massachusetts. Like, let's talk about uh, your childhood and like how you came to this point. Uh, you know, like what kind of kid were you? What, you know, what's your family situation like? Like, you know, how did it all begin? And, and, and I guess uh, like an obvious question is like, did you always know you were going to be a writer? Like, was this something you've been, uh, you've been aiming towards since you were young or did, it, did you arrive at it later? Yeah, for a pretty long time. Um, well, my dad's a writer, so that definitely, you know, I think because of that, it really felt more like a possible option. What kind of writer? Uh, I mean, like a writer of of fiction, or yeah, he's like, he's he's a novelist, um, short story writer. Um, and what's his name? What's his, know, I mean, what's his name? Who would we? His name's Jonathan Wilson. Okay. He's written, I think, four books of fiction and three of nonfiction. Um, two novels, two collections of stories. But um, and he teaches creative writing, so you know, I think because of that, it seemed like it seemed like a really viable career option. Also just one of the few careers that I actually knew about. Right. You like, had, like you had some sort of context for it. You understood. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's a family business. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, I was always good at, I was a terrible student in school and as a kid in middle school and high school, even in college, I was, I was an okay student. Um, well, probably could have been better, but um, I was always good at good at writing and not that good at anything else. Um, like, so it, like you were getting uh, A's in English and stuff like that, but not good grades in yeah. ma- math and science. Yeah, or maybe it was more like I was getting B's in English <laughs> <laughs> and not such good grades in math and science. So how did you get into uh, Tufts? You know, like that seems like well, a not so easy school was, to get into. You know, that was part of the family business, also. I think because. Uh, my dad teaches there. Ah, okay. okay. I, I honestly don't think I would have gotten in if, if, um, if that wasn't the case. Although I did quite well on my SATs, but but my my GPA was not so great. What did you What did you get on your SATs? Did you get like a sixteen hundred or something? Or no? Oh, okay. Like, what'd you get? Did you, did you mind saying? Like, was it in like the some sort of super high range? Uh fourteen ninety. Oh shit, that's Ooh, really good. good. So and you yeah. suck, and you sucked at math. Well, I aced the math on the SAT. I, I I don't know if I sucked at math so much. I didn't. I was stoned a lot of the time in high school. Oh, you were okay. Like most all the time. So so and you could handle it. Like this is why because I had a conversation I think with Dennis Cooper because he used to go to high school on acid. And uh, right. I, I know there are a lot of kids at my high school who are smoking pot and going to school. Um, and I guess if that's like was kind of your, your your state, your normal state, then people just thought that's what you were like. So they didn't have like a they didn't have anything to compare it to. Uh, right. But I just like you know knowing how uh, I react, I'm sh- I think I would have just been so obvious, you know, or I don't know if I could have handled it. Well, 
I looking back on it, it seems shocking to me. Yeah. Okay. Because, but you know what? Like if I, like if I, even in you know, even in college or, or in grad school, like if I, I couldn't even imagine going to class stone. Right. Uh, but in high school, it was just the norm. It, it, it you know, it was just what I did. And you didn't know better. That's like when you could do that shit because you just didn't know better. You know, <laughs> like. Uh-huh. It's like blissful ignorance. Because um, I, yeah. I was kind of the same way. Like, I think my freshman year of college, I sort of went through that. Like, I was like, you know. Oh, yeah, my freshman year of college, too. <laughs> like, there was like a period of my life, like, you know, for about a year to two years, where, like, I just wanted to do everything stoned. Like, I wanted to be like, let's go to the, gro- yeah. let's go to the grocery store stoned. Like, let's, let's go to the museum stoned. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was like these field trips almost. And it was like, uh, yeah, it was everything inc- was a field trip. It, yeah. Everything was a field trip and it was incredibly fun. You know, like I look back on it as dumb as it was and like as stupid as some of my behavior, uh, you know, no doubt was like, I look back on it with like incredible fondness, <laughs> you know, like it's just, uh, I have a sentimental, thing about it you know that that particular window of time in your life when uh that stuff happens you know like i, I don't know why i just i feel warmly about it yeah <laughs> no i know what you mean i have a lot of i have a lot of nostalgia for i think in part for like the whole kind of communal aspect of smoking pot yeah i mean and just uh I don't know. There's a sense of possibility. And, you know, the thing about it is that it's really easy to categorize. This sort of gets back to what we were talking about earlier about like painting things black or white when it comes to substance. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah, you're, you're 19 years old and you're sort of an idiot and you think, you know, more, you know, way more than you do. And you're, you're smoking too much pot or you're drinking too much or whatever it is. But, you know, amid all of that, there were some moments that were like genuinely, uh, you know, intelligent and, and profound, you know what I'm saying? Like you could be, sitting, yeah. you could be sitting up at two in the morning in a college dorm room, uh, doing bong hits with your roommate and you, you can land on something like really deep and interesting and, you know, meaningful, you know, like, uh, and that's what I think I'm most nostalgic for, you know, is just the, the sense of openness that you have at that age, you know, and freedom. Sure. Um, so, okay. So, you know, you're growing up, your, your dad's a writer. Uh, what about your mother? Like, was she creative my, as well? Uh, my mom's, yeah, my mom's an artist. She's a paint, she's an abstract painter. Oh, wow. So you, you just have it all, so, like both sides. Like, yeah, both sides. Um, siblings. I have a brother who actually lives across the street from me in Brooklyn. Right now. Um, yep. Oh, wow. What does he do? He just finished film school. He just, and he's You said film school? Film school, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So he does film and photography. My it's funny, my mom and my mother are both incredibly visual people and my dad and I are not at all particularly visually inclined. But who of the four of you? I mean of your of your parents, you and your brother, like do you have a sense of who is the most gifted? Like, or is that like a terrible question? You know, like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I could answer that, but then I could never email this to them. This <laughs> podcast. So, we'll talk about that off the record, you know? Um, yeah, but I you, don't know. It's, you know, different, different fields, different mediums. It's, it's tough. But I mean, like, do you, okay, here, I'll, I'll, I'll couch it another way without 
um, you know, requiring you to answer it. But like, if I polled, if you had, if you gave everybody in your family sodium pentothal, and you said which person in the family is the most naturally gifted, do you think that everyone in the family would say the same person? No, I think they'd all have different answers. Oh, you do. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so when you when you come from a family uh, of creatives like this, you know, and and uh, both children are, are in, you know into the creative arts and storytelling, you know, of some kind, I would imagine. Uh, then do you feel like a sense of competition? Like, is there any, is there any weirdness about like you publishing this book and, you know, it's getting all these great blurbs and, uh, some great reviews. Like, do you feel any weirdness with like, you know, success or, uh, or lack thereof, or do you know what I'm saying? Like, does that factor into the um, equation or is it a pretty supportive situation? Sure. And I think for a long time I felt, you know, really competitive with my dad or that I somehow had, you know, my dad had a lot of a lot of the first things he wrote were quite successful. Like I think like the first like four short stories he ever published were in the New Yorker or something. And I, I think that seemed really daunting to me. Um, and I felt like I could never, you know, I would never be able to live up to that. Um, and, you know, I think then later on I realized that, I don't know. I think when I realized my dad wasn't actually that fit, but no one's ever heard of him. <laughs> uh, so it's okay. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing about writing. I mean, you know, there are how many writers are there that are actually, you know, like household names? It's very, right, exactly. There's like 10. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, no, and then I started kind of feeling kind of bad. And I was like, How, what do you mean you haven't heard? You know, and then, like, really being defensive of him, of my dad, and being like, well, he posts all these stories in the New Yorker. Right. Sure people, That's American you, short story. Yeah, <laughs> people should know that. You would, you know, in a perfect world, people would know that. And that would mean something culturally beyond the sphere of, like, you know, people who subscribe to the New Yorker and people who yeah. sub- submit to the slush pile and, right, exactly. you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so when you were growing up, like, like what were you like as a kid, you know, coming up in, in Boston in this house of, uh, you know, artistic people, like, you know, obviously you weren't a great student and obviously in high school you were, um, smoking a lot of weed and going to school, but, um, you know, like what, what else? Like socially, like, you know, give us, give me a sense of how you fit into the mix, you know, at your high school. Um, I was, you know, I played a lot of sports when I was a kid. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wanted to be a baseball player, like pretty much every other kid in Boston. Um, I was very into the Red Sox. Yeah. Everyone up and, there in the Northeast is like super into baseball. That's like a cultural yeah. thing. It's like a cultural thing up there. Yeah. Serious stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, you know, I played baseball. I was pretty good at baseball. I was a pitcher and I was a lefty. Um, and then I kind of got, and I think around seventh grade, I, I injured my elbow. And then a little after that, started smoking pot. And that kind of, was, it all devolved into the end of my sports career. <laughs> um, but I, I think I pretty much just went from being really into sports to being really into drugs, like very quickly. And there wasn't room for much outside of those two obsessions. Were you exci- um, were you excited? Because um, you know, I, it's it's just fun to get stoned. 
you know? Like there's, oh, yeah. There's a fun element. But were you excited intellectually by it? Like, did you feel like there was any real... Um, oh, know, totally. I, like, I mean, at the time, I think part of it was that, you know, and my father always blames himself for this, that, you know, he was giving me, you know, he was trying to get me into reading. Um, and, you know, he knew I was, like, into... I don't know, psychedelic type of music and, you know, I had long hair. And so he was giving me all these books like Fear and Loathing of Las Vegas and stuff, which, <laughs> you know, to like a eighth grader is kind of the fuel for this fire. That's what you give an eighth grader who's just discovering weed, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> so it did seem really, I mean, it did seem really exciting. And, you know, like there was this kind of possibility for something you know, at least interesting other than the girls in my high school who weren't paying any attention to me. Um, but, you know, there was, a, there was this other thing that that was almost as good, maybe. Well, now, and then when you say, like, were you, shy, were you shy around girls? Or, like, were you just, uh, like... Because I was kind of the same way. Like, I just didn't... I had a hard time. Like, I, I don't even understand... Uh, people who talk about high school and how they like went on dates and you know, I was like, yeah, I was like, what? Like, there's like none of that f- formally happening. You know, people like dated and like you know there were couples, obviously, but like, right, there's none of this like going to pick up Susie on a Friday night, you know, and getting like a milkshake or whatever the f- no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think I just did really had no idea what I had no sense of sort of how I was presenting myself or like I don't think I had the imaginative capabilities to to sort of think about what a 15 year old girl was thinking and and how she would react to things I said and what would make her like me like right. that was just beyond the realm of my imagination well and, and there, I, we should also point out though that like smoking pot chronically does not tend to help one uh, no, get girls. <laughs> Definitely not. It took uh, me. It took me a, a long time to figure that out. I was like, "Oh, this is actually. Yeah. This is actually. Uh, I'm just sitting on my couch, like you know." <laughs> uh, I mean, I think if that, if there was like if there were sort of accurate um, like PSAs for drug use, they'd be like, "If you want to get laid, put down the joint, buddy." Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like that, like I feel like that might have made an impact on me. Although probably not, I would have thought it was bullshit. But well, yeah, no. But, but, uh, but you know what? I've had this conversation uh, repeatedly in my adult life, and maybe even on this show before, where I always felt like the you know one of the biggest reasons why so many people uh, in my generation. I'm like I'm assuming you're in. We're close in age. How old are you? Like in your. You, um, I'm about to turn 30. Oh, okay. So I'm a few I'm a few years older than you, but like, you know, we come from essentially the same era and I just always have argued that like if someone would have just given me good information, uh, yeah. Accurate, oh, yeah. accurate information, like I would have had um a, a lot better go of it. Like but as it stood, I was just told that all drugs were evil, you know, just kind of like this blanket uh, you know, just say no bullshit and then as soon as you realize that that's inaccurate, you know, my attitude was that, like, you know, these people are lying, they, they don't know what they're talking about, and I'm going to figure this out on my own. And uh, Yeah, no, exactly. I just wish that, I think that, I think we should make, someone should make accurate drug PSAs and just put them up. I would have liked, and I would have liked an accurate, I also would have liked accurate information about teenage girls. Yes. That, 
you know, some really basic stuff that I was just totally missing. Maybe you should write a self-help book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for young, uh, you know, pot adult really But I think it's, yeah. <laughs> could be, could, I could, that, that might be the way I could change the world. <laughs> <laughs> leave your mark, but, uh, leave a lasting positive impact, but... Yeah, I, just, yeah. I felt like that. I think that there was a dearth of information. It, could be, it would be called "Women Are People Too." <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the other thing too is that you know we we grew up in a time prior to the internet and social media. And another thing that I always argue is that I would have had a much better time of it if I would have had uh, something like Facebook. Uh, oh, or, yeah. or just the ability to like text someone because like I was so no, I know it was so painfully shy. Uh, around I girls, know. especially girls that I was attracted to, that I, when it came time to talk to them, it was it didn't tend to go that well. Or um, I would just ingratiate myself to them at the level of friendship, and something that I was doing, you know, just made me like <laughs> they were like, okay, we're friends. Do you know what I'm saying? It was yeah, like, yeah. I was never good at like the actual seduction, or I don't even know what you call it, even to this day. But you know what I'm saying, so. Uh, I feel like maybe if there was some sort of remove, and especially if I could have communicated in writing, I, I would have had a better chance. I agree. I agree. So wh- I, I, I think it took me until college, until like fairly deep into college, to realize that if you want to kiss a girl, you have to lean in to kiss her. <laughs> you can't just sort of sit there and imagine it until it happens. That was that was a huge revelation for me, and then of course I was just leaning in to kiss everyone I saw, and, and it didn't really work that much of the time, but it did sometimes. Well, that was the thing. I think that's like why I loved, you know, I think that's why teenagers love to drink beer, you know, and and because it, it gives you like an ability to, uh, you know, overcome those fears. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that was it. I mean, yeah. And in college, I mean, it's that it's a really probably a really obvious point, but um, you know, do you? Have you even even at this age, like at this, to this day, do you feel like you've gotten to the point where, like, uh, are you single? I should ask that. I'm married, so uh, no, I I have I have a girlfriend who I live with. Oh, okay, so you're out of the game. Uh, you're not out. I'm yet. out of the game. All right. Yeah. So what? Like, but I mean, like, did you ever reach a point in your adult life where you were like, uh, yeah, I like you. Let's go on a date. Or was it still awkward even to the end until you finally like somehow met the girl that you're with now? <laughs> no, I think I I think I got there eventually. Maybe in grad school. Yeah. Was there some book that you read or was it just a function of age? Did you, did you have like an epiphany? Um, no, I don't know. Just, it's just like slow, very slow trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 10 years of trial and error. <laughs> mostly, <Eventually>. mostly error. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So just to like finish high school, like I'm curious about like the kind of kids you ran with, like you were running with other like athletes and baseball players. And then like once, no, you... yeah, not in high school, in high school, my friends were just stoners, stoners. But did it change? Like, you know, cause you talked about when you got your, you know, you injured your, your arm and then you kind of, yeah. like, you kind of like transitioned out of sports and into drugs. Like, did you change friend groups when that happened? Um, I think, you know, like around that time, everyone was sort of changing friend groups and it just kind of, I was still, I was still like always somewhat friends with like the the athletes and I I was kind of friendly with everyone. Um, But 
you know, didn't my my main posse was was the stoners. No, and it seems like, I mean, do you have like a comedic bent? Like that's the feeling I get just talking to you. And like, obviously your book, um, it's, it's got some, you know, it's funny. Um, yeah, that's not all it is, but it definitely like you, you lean that way. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, definitely. And you always have like, it was just like a, yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and in that sense, I sort of feel like, you know, when I was in high school, I was, I was kind of always the funny guy and I was never quite sure if I was being laughed at or laughed with, but I, but I didn't really care. I just wanted attention, I think. So like what, like what kind of stuff were you doing? I mean, you're just like the kid in class who was like cracking jokes or were you like physical comedy or was it? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of joke cracking in class. Um, did you, did you ever feel like when you were doing that, uh, I don't know. I mean, how, like, what was your success rate? Because, like, I was sort of the same way, and, like, there were times when, like, uh, it wasn't funny. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, not always. But, I mean, do you feel like you, you, you had a good batting average in that regard, or do you, you feel like you were, like... Uh, yeah. I think I had a decent batting average. Um, I don't know. You could poll my former high school classmate. <laughs> um, but I thought I was being really funny. Yeah, I did too. I, I, I was like, uh, I was convinced, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I've never really thought about what other people thought <laughs> until now. <laughs> it's probably, Maybe they all really annoying. Yeah, it's probably better not to think about it, you know. Just yeah. live, with um, your, live with your illusion. Uh, I, I had, in eighth grade, I had a big hit. I, I wrote a song. I played the guitar, and I, I wrote a song to the t- about O.J. Sim- the O.J. Simpson trial to the tune of Bob Dylan's Hurricane, um, <laughs> that, was, that was recorded and disseminated around school. Can you um, uh, can you recite lyrics, or would you care sing? You know, can you? I don't know if you... I think the the chorus went something like, "Oh O.J., why did you kill Nicole and that other guy too, just because he was a Jew?" <laughs> <laughs> Um, where were you? Do you remember where you were? Like, we, I, I, it's one of those. It's it's sort of sad to say because like you remember where you were on nine eleven, and I remember where I was when the space shuttle Challenger blew up because I was in elementary school, um, you know. And I remember I was in college uh, at the time of the OJ Simpson like white Bronco, you know, slow chase on the I think it was the ten freeway, and uh, I remember I was in my buddy's apartment. And we were smoking pot, watching the New York Knicks play the Houston Rockets. Like that's how specific it was. Like, and I, and I have a terrible memory. I seem to remember that I was watching a Chicago Bulls playoff game at the time. Okay, well maybe that was it. Maybe I'm misremembering. But I was watching NBA NBA playoffs. <laughs> I, I also am. I am also certain I was watching NBA playoffs that was interrupted by it. Okay, so there we were. You know, in our separate uni- universes. Um, yeah. So okay. So then. Uh, you get to college and, you know, like, t- tell me about Tufts. I know nothing about it. Um, it's, uh, there's not much to tell. <laughs> Just... It's, uh, it's like, you know, it's, it's like a small East Coast school, except kind of different because it's, it's in Boston. So it's, it's a bit more of, you know, it's not like a lot of white kids playing frisbee it's like some white kids playing frisbee but then a lot of you know children of wealthy diplomats 
from various Latin American countries. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, and socially and everything, you were, it was basically like a continuation of high school. Like you didn't make any like radical transformations at that age. Um, yeah, not at least not at the beginning. I sort of later on kind of, yeah, I pretty much made the same kinds of friends. Um, but it was a little different. It was a little, it was a little bit, there were, a little, there were more girls who smoked pot in college, which was good. Than, than, than in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I think I found that too. I think that was, that's actually an accurate description. Like, I feel like yeah. for some reason there weren't a ton of like stoner girls. There were some, but there weren't like as many, you know? Yeah. But in college there were a few more. Um, which improved the ratio, that, you know, improved the ratio was improved. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I was a little more, I, I was definitely more into school. Uh, like I wasn't a bad student in college. I wasn't necessarily a great student. Um, yeah, I was an English major. I took creative writing classes, English classes. I did, I did well in creative writing and really liked it. I, I was, I was sort of fairly intimidated in a lot of the English classes by people who were really pretentious. And at the time, I thought they were just really smart. Um, although then sort of later realized that they probably didn't know anything. So, but, when, um, so when you say pretentious, you're just talking like fellow students who uh, were kind of talking a big game? or Yeah, or just like had that whole like... I don't know, wearing all black and right. referencing shit I'd never heard of <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> right. But um but yeah, I was I wasn't a bad student. Um And you knew and you knew as an undergraduate student that you were probably gonna be a writer of some sort or a filmmaker? I mean was it I mean I still thought I was just gonna be a fuck up. <laughs> but um but I sort of thought if I if I did turn out to be anything, it would be one of those things. Did you? Um, oh, here's an interesting question. Then, like, did your parents did, have they ever told you like we always knew like this is how it would go, or were they surprised to see? You? No, I think they were surprised and happy. What, what were they expecting? Do you think otherwise? <laughs> I mean, I think they just you know there were definitely times when they just didn't think I was ever going to get get my life together, and I I think that you know I think they. They were on the fence. They weren't sure, as I kind of was too. Right. Um, but I think they're pretty happy. You know, they were just so. You know, it's funny you were asking me like if I if I had competition with my dad about writing and stuff. I think he's just like so relieved that I'm not like working at McDonald's. <laughs> 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 he's so fat that. That's it. Well, that's how I, you know. That's probably how any parent. I mean, I'm a parent. Yeah. Now. I just, you know, I don't care. I just want to make sure she's okay. That's it. You know? Yeah. Like I think my dad's just happy. I, you know, my parents are just happy I can afford rent. I'm like, <laughs> you know, that I'm not asking them for money. Right. As often. Right. 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 <laughs> and when I do ask not for as much, you know. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, so what about like, you know, like just before we, we wrap up, like, you know, you do, uh, some writing, uh, online, you know, like I'm curious about, you know, as you enter this publication cycle, you know, for your debut, uh, novel, like, do you feel, uh, th like that sense of pressure to go out and, and, um, 
you know, try to find people online and do that whole thing? Or are you just sort of, uh, content to just kind of let it go out into the world? And if, you know, if, if people talk about it and there's word of mouth, then that's how it goes, you know, like what's, um, what's your approach? Cause you write for like, what you write for the faster times and the Paris review and like uh, you do some of that stuff, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think my approach is kind of, you know, a little bit, a little bit in each camp. Um, I feel like I've done so much online writing for the past few years and, you know, worked really hard to like get my name out there online and be publishing stuff constantly on the internet and blah, 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 that I almost feel like I did all that so that, you know, so that I could sort of chill now. But now that I have a book coming out, I don't really have to do that as much, maybe. But I don't know. That could be the wrong approach. Um, but I was the editor of the Faster Times for the last couple of years, and that was my that was my day job. It was my full time job. Um, and I recently have taken some, you know, I've left that job, and I'm taking some time off. And um, you know, now I'm, I'm trying to work on another. Now I'm just trying to work on another novel. I'm sort of. How's that going? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. Like how, how far uh, how far along is it? Like, are you thousands and thousands of words in, or did you just start it? No, I'm, I'm like fifteen thousand words or so. Um, but you know, I've sort of been working on this opening section for a while and kind of rewriting it and rewriting it to get it right. Well, I was going to say, uh, like, how, how do you work? Like, are you an, uh, are you uh, like really ritualistic about it, and do you work like in a really disciplined way, um, or is it more like you know? three days a week when you feel like it and you get a ton done. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, no, I'm pretty ritualistic and you know, it depends. My schedule's kind of changed a lot recently, um, which has been really nice. I sort of finally have some time to write, but, um, you know, before, like when I was working at book court, I'd, I'd often work these 9am to one thirty shifts and then I'd work again from six to 10 that night. And so I'd write from one thirty to six and that was like, it was hell, but but it was the only way I could do it. And it was, you know, actually, you know, sort of worked for me at the time. Um, but these days I'm, I'm teaching, um, a couple of days a week, but otherwise, you know, I just, where I wake you, where, up. Where do you teach? Um, I, I'm teaching, I just started teaching undergrad creative writing at NYU. Um, and I'm also teaching, I teach at this place, the Sackett Street Writers Workshop, which is sort of a, like an adult writing workshop. Um, and, and by adult, you just mean that adults go there, not like 18 year olds. It's not like adult. Right. It's, you know, I mean, it's mostly, it's a sort of a combination of recent college grads who either are thinking about doing an MFA or, or don't want, aren't doing an MFA, but want to do a sort of cheaper alternative or just, you know, like people who have careers, but also decided they want to take this writing class. Gotcha. Um, which was really fun. But yeah, so now, now I write in the mornings and, and have life every day. Do you have, do you have faith? Like, do you, do you have like a real implicit belief that you are going to be able to support yourself with your fiction? Do you think that's possible in this world, in this particular publishing climate? Or do you feel like, I mean, I feel like everyone sort of has to believe that in order to to even be able to put the energy sure. into the world. I mean, you know, I think combined with teaching and 
doing some freelance work and sort of balancing all those things, then yeah, I don't, I don't think I, you know, I, I think there's only like 10 people who can survive on their fiction alone at the moment. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very, like, but, it's very mathematically unlikely. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel like just being, you know, being in Brooklyn and having a dad who's a writer, I sort of do feel like I have a sense of how people have careers um, in which they, you know, you know, kind of balance out teaching and, you know, writing the magazine articles here and there and writing some stuff for the web and, and writing their fiction and, and piece together a living that way. Um, so that is, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I wish you uh, all the best of luck with it, and uh, congrats again. Uh, the book is called Flat Screen, and uh, it's been really fun talking with you, man. You too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, there it is. That's the program. That's all she wrote. That's uh, Adam Wilson. Great talking with him. Very funny guy. Very enjoyable in conversation. His book is called Flat Screen. It's available now from Harper Perennial. And uh, he's got a website. It's coming soon. Otherwise, you can check him out on Facebook or you can follow him on Twitter where his handle is at Bubbles Depot. So that's Bubbles and then the word Depot, D-E-P-O-T. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, you can email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Don't forget to check out The Nervous Breakdown. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on Twitter at TNB Tweets. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Go visit killrockstars.com. And uh, if you like what just happened, if you had a good experience, please do take a couple of minutes and go over to iTunes and rate and review the show. Please do this. Uh, it takes two seconds, and it really does help the cause. Otherwise, closing thoughts. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, Philip Roth, uh, what can you say? Uh, you know, I think the part of it is just that they're old and, uh, you know, old people and young children just tell the truth more often. I believe that. And, and I don't say that in a reductive manner. I'm not, you know, I'm saying that uh, with admiration. And I, you know, I wonder, if, I wonder if you had a lie detector hooked up to human beings at all times throughout their entire lives. Like, at what age do people lie the most frequently? That's a good question. You know, I'm sort of thinking that it happens in your 20s and 30s. Though I could be wrong. Like, maybe, maybe people lie the most. There's the highest concentration of lying at, like, age 39. Or, or maybe it's, like, 27. I have no idea. You know, I wonder what, what it would be if you averaged it all out over a population. Uh, it's interesting to contemplate. So, uh, another thing that's interesting to contemplate, fruit. Apples, bananas, oranges. Just the fact that they grow like that. Just like that. Perfectly. Can't, I, you know, I can't believe it sometimes when I look at that stuff. Sort of trips me out. And uh, we're now approaching the end of citrus season. Uh, the end of the Satsuma tangerine season. And, uh, you know, I have an incredible amount of love for the Satsuma tangerine. I think they might be the most perfect, you know, most perfect food in the world. Uh, so user-friendly, so easy to peel, and so high in vitamin C. And, uh, but what is a vitamin, you know, do I really know? It's, it's a sort of strange to think that I just said that and I don't even really know, uh, what a vitamin is. So hang on a second. I'm going to click over here and, uh, let's check this out. Okay. Yeah. And it's an organic, I'm looking at this on Wikipedia. It's an organic chemical compound vital to the survival of an organism. And, uh, 
with that in mind, well, you know, why don't we just uh, let's round this out? We'll make the circle complete. Uh, a vitamin is a vital or organic or a vital organic chemical compound necessary for survival, uh, as is uh, fiction and books and storytelling in general, uh, all of which are necessary uh, for the survival uh, of an organism called humanity. How do you like that? Huh? It's pretty deep. And uh, thank you for being here. That's all I got. Please tell your friends about the show. Please tell complete strangers. Please eat fruit. Please remember the wisdom of the tangerine. It's like holding a ray of sunshine in the palm of your hand. I'm serious.